0: The masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly made me something near beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close just view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, doctor Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know.
1: All
2: right, Higher Side Chatters, as we assess the situation across many different seemingly separate subjects and areas of interest, we realize much of what's there is not the result of the best research, the purest motivations, or even randomness, to say the least. No, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, it seems a carefully crafted tapestry of propaganda has turned everything into a funnel to keep the funds flowing up to the shadowy cabal, the capstone of the precious power pyramid, and keep the people in ignorant servitude. Because whether we're talking about education, the medical field, the energy industry, the space program, regulatory agencies, UFOs, geopolitics, or even world events, the results seem to be largely the same. Well, we're not alone in our realization, because today's guest, Massimo Mazzucco, is an award-winning Italian filmmaker who's been through an awakening of his own, and after finding success making commercial films, he decided to switch gears and use his talents to tell the tales they'd rather he not, with documentaries like The New American Century... The True History of Marijuana, Cancer, The Forbidden Cures, Global Deceit, which was the first Italian documentary on the truth about 9-11, and September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor, a five-hour plus film that looks to make the definitive case on 9-11 and point by point dismantle the paper-thin arguments made by so-called debunkers. A man of the people, a beacon of light in the darkness, and an 8mm magic maker, Massimo, welcome to the higher side.
1: Hello, Greg. Nice talk to you and to all your audience.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here. A listener in our forums recommended I check out your films, and I'm so glad I did because you've tackled a lot of seemingly separate subjects in your work, but you seem to see a lot of the same patterns when it comes to why things are the way they are, don't you?
1: Absolutely. The word seemingly is the key word here. (laughs) Uh, Seemingly different. Uh, You start off with one and then once you get to the second issue, which, whichever it is, it can be the Kennedy assassination, the UFO truth, uh, the, the 9-11 problem, the marijuana problem, the cancer, the forbidden cures problem. Even as, as soon as you get to the second one of them, you realize that there is a connection. The connection is in the pattern of lying. This is why I actually call my, my the, the collection of my DVDs is called The Great Lies of History. Mm. Because they're all different, but they all fall under this umbrella name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you mentioned them. I, th- I think you, you skipped one, which was uh, – you skipped two of them. One was uh, uh, The Second Dallas, which was on the Robert Kennedy assassination. Right. And the other one that you didn't mention is UFO and the Military Elite, which is, strangely enough, not a film about a uh, little green man. <laughs> in fact, the only little green man that, you, that the film talks about are the people in the Pentagon.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's really a film about – how the military has been suppressing the information we have been having or receiving about UFOs since the 1950s. So it really doesn't state that, yes, aliens do exist, but it does state that a lot of things are, have been kept from us, mm-hmm. and the only reason I can assume that they're being kept from us is because there's something to hide, <laughs> and that something can only be, in my opinion, uh, alien life. Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, in my my, I tell you my story very briefly. You mentioned the global deceit. That was actually the first DVD I made in two in the first film I made in two thousand and six was pretty much the equivalent of Loose Change in in America. I did the same for the Italian audience. It simply shows and collects all the main uh, criticism that we in the nine eleven truth movement have against the official version of nine eleven. So the facts that now are very well known to everybody the fact that uh, these people were, were were hijacking airplanes with box cutters and uh, but there are no pictures of them at the airport no names in the in the uh, in the lists of passengers lists and all that the way the towers fell the the, the fact that there's no apparently there's no airplane at the pentagon the fact that the hole in Shanksville does not contain a plane at all. All this, you know, the major problems of the, of the official version. Mm-hmm. This film was, mm-hmm. was broadcast, believe it or not, in Italy on national television in, in 2006 by, any, by a Berlusconi channel. So uh, you, you could say the, not the equivalent of Fox, but pretty much very conservative. Definitely not uh, a liberal agenda. And it created a big, big, big scandal, of course, because for the first time, people in Italy saw the the way the towers really collapsed with with explosions on the side, and they heard the testimonies about the people who heard the explosions. And it caused a big stir. In in fact, the discussion in Italy on mainstream media went on about 9-11 for about a year after that. And I have to say that up to this day, I think it's the only Western country where the 9-11 issue has been thoroughly discussed at the level of mainstream media. And that doesn't mean, of course, that everybody now in Italy believes that 9-11 was an inside job. But at least the issue, the, the, the fact that there is a problem with the official version has been exposed and has been thoroughly analyzed by the mainstream media. Of course, the way they do it, it's always a little tilted. So it's always like, you know, they have a little accent towards you. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist and all that. But it actually let you speak, and I had my chances to speak on Italian television and that really opened up a, a whole new a whole Pandora's box for me. Hmm. After that, I started getting interested in, 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 because of a friend of mine, I started getting interested in alternative cures for cancer. And I found out that in the last 100 years, there had been at least 10, if not more, apparently valid uh, alternative cures for cancer based on, on natural products, which had either been dismissed or ignored, or Distorted, lied on, uh, meaning they tell you that they don't work when they know that they do work, and so I made this this uh, compilation of, of alternative methods i don't suggest anyone in particular I'm not a doctor, so I, in my film it's, it's very uh, very clearly disclaimed that I only do this as an historical from an historical point of view, mm-hmm. but there are once you, again you know, once you start seeing all these cures that have emerged. Apparently valid with a lot, a lot, a lot of testimonies from people that they say they were cured with, for example, with um, the Essiac tea, which is a tea made in Canada, or with the Hoxie treatment, or with the Gerson therapy, or with the shark cartilage, or with the vitamin uh, B17 vitamin, and all that. Once you see the pattern again, and every time you have this possibility of curing cancer, you find out that official medicine does not come in and actually have an inquiry on it and then see if it's possible to cure but they suppress it they don't want to hear about it because you cannot make money out of a natural product you cannot patent uh, vitamins for example vitamin b12 b17 you cannot patent that Mm -hmm. so basically they, they if they cannot make money they disregard it they dismiss it and sometimes they even put people in jail they have in the past if they are too dangerous, in terms of, or they force them to have their clinics outside the U.S. For example, Gerson, whom I'm sure many of your uh, listeners have have heard of, mm-hmm. was forced mm-hmm. to have his clinics only in Mexico. He cannot operate. He, he's dead now, but his his uh, this, his uh, uh, son and, and and daughter and uh, and grandson cannot operate in the United States. It's forbidden. The same was done for Hoxie, a guy who found a treatment, a herbal treatment for cancer back in the fifty, in the 40s and 50s. He, this guy had up to 17 clinics in the 1950s. People were coming in and were getting cured from cancer until the AMA, the American Medical Association came in and they had him close all the, all the, all the hospitals at once and they forced him to just open up in Mexico. He cannot operate. He's dead now, but, again, his, his people cannot operate in the United States now. So th- this was a, a common pattern. When I saw that all the stories had the same pattern, I realized that, of course, there must be some interest in really not curing cancer and that uh, the real interest of, of the so-called worldwide oncological system is to simply have the patients come in and force them to accept the only three available cures that they offer them, which is surgery, chemotherapy, and radiotherapy, and then until they live, they make money out of them, basically, they milk them like cows, and when they die, oops, come in, you know, next, let 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 the next one come in. They really do not have any interest in curing cancer. The machine, the money-making machine that the cancer industry is does not allow them to find a cure for cancer. Even if they had one, they would not tell you. That was the conclusion I, I came to, and that's why I made this film. Mm.
2: Yeah, man, uh, that is a a pretty decent uh, overview. I mean, you've made so many films. The pattern, of course, like you said, does seem to be fairly the same, you know, very parallel from one subject to another. And, you know, seeing something like loose change on television (laughs) seems pretty impossible over here. Yes. Were the Italian people a little more open to the idea of it being a false flag?
1: Well, in a way, well, think of this. To 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 screen a, a film on nine eleven in the states would mean to have to basically admit that we did it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. For a foreign country like Italy, it is relatively easier to judge a foreign country like Amer- like the United States. Uh, not that. There are there are many lovers of the United States here. In fact, I was attacked as an anti-American here. I was attacked as an anti-democratic because a lot of people like the United States here, of course. Mm-hmm. But it is easier mm-hmm. because it's not us. You're not talking about us. In fact, we have uh, we have had a season of state-sponsored terrorism back in the 70s and 80s, which was so intense that we have coined the term state sponsored terrorism and it's actually used normally in, in in mainstream conversation here wow so we do accept we do accept the idea that state sponsor oh sorry state sponsored terrorism does exist and that you know this could be or could not be but at least the idea that this exists is accepted in in the mainstream media in mainstream thinking so that helps a lot because you can always suggest that something is an inside job but you don't fall completely out of the Thinking frame, there is at least some precedent that we know. For the United States, it's different. We only had in the United States, we've only had, I say we because I'm also American, I have a double nationality. So I can play either one, whatever is more convenient for me. When it's convenient, I'm Italian. <laughs> when it's convenient, I'm American. Anyway, um, in the United States, there was only Oklahoma City. And it was really the first time that terrorism hit home. And uh, that was put away with, you know, with with uh, a guy from the from the uh, right wing groups, the the the, the right, uh, what do you call them, Christian right, military groups. So that was put away. Of course, I don't, I'm not convinced it was that, but that was the only one. And for for an American person, an average American, to have to accept your own government, no, it does not, is not actually there to protect you. They don't care about you, in fact. And to have to come to that realization and to even consider that it could have killed 3,000 of their own just to pursue their own geopolitical agenda in the, in the, in the Far East and Middle East, Afghanistan and, and Iraq, it's very hard. It's not easy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In, in okay. fact, I always say that 9-11 is primarily a psychological problem. It's not a... Not a technical problem. If you are ready to accept it psychologically, the evidence is there and it's overwhelming. There is there is no, no argument there. The problem is that the human being has a mechanism of self-defense, the denial mechanism. If you know that you're going towards a conclusion that you are not able to accept, then you'll just deny it up front. You, you, the denial mechanism kicks in. It's actually a, a safety thing that we have and it's good that humans have it. Because they 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 can keep away from things that would be too hurtful, and I think in fact that uh, this is the problem with 9/11. Very few people are ready to accept the idea that this was an inside job. Uh, I'm I'm speaking, of course, assuming that your audience, at least mostly, understands. Or agrees that this was an inside job. If this is not the case, oh, yeah. please help me because I, I should change. The- no, no, no. We're on that page. Okay. And just, you know, just to make sure because otherwise people <laughs> kind of think, where did he get this crazy guy? Where did he come from? <laughs> okay. So basically, it's a psychological problem. I have one, one anecdote that that was very, very meaningful to me. One, when I completed the second film on 9 11, as I said, the first one was only in Italian. It was 2006. Then in 2009, I made the New American Century, which is in English and Italian. And that covers not only the events of nine specific events of nine eleven, but the entire scenario that could have been behind the political scenario, the economical, the geostrategical aspects of why did the United States need a 9-11, because they were it was absolutely needed. And what happened in the next 15 years, by the way, showed it very clearly. When I did that second film. I, I gave it to my next door neighbor. In, in, I was living in Los Angeles there. and I said, "You know, this is a film that gives you an alternative idea of what could have happened on 9/11." And I remember her face. And I gave it to her. I gave her the DVD. It just came home with them in, in a box, so I just gave him one. gave her gave her one. A week later, she returns it to me and says, "Oh yeah, it's a very sad story." And she gave it back to me, and they still have the cellophane on. The, the You know, the, the plastic covering? <laughs> yeah. She had not even opened it up. That showed to me what denial can do. She knew that she had opened that thing and, and, and popped it into the DVD player. She might have to, have to, to come to deal with, with uh, thoughts that she wasn't ready to deal with. Mm-hmm. So she just preferred not to look at it. That. That's really the problem in 9-11. It's such a large realization that you have to come to and such a large concept you have to accept that not many people are ready for it. In fact, the reason why 9/11 remains to this day the biggest lie in in recent history is a quote uh, in a quote by Marshall McLuhan. He said, "Small secrets are the most difficult to keep. For the very large ones, people's incredulity will always be sufficient." Mm. In yeah. other words, the very fact that you that you go, "Oh, come on, that can't be. It's too big," you are the very guardian the very how do you say cell holder the, the very you keep yourself prisoner by your own unwillingness to accept such a large reality which is uncomfortable and that's why it works that's true that's why it works was hitler who said the larger the lie the more people will tend to believe it because accepting such a large lie would mean to change completely your way of thinking and rather than do that most people just you know rather not look at it
2: Amen to that. Yeah, I mean, I was in high school at the time, and the idea of self sabotage, it did seem so radical when it was first presented to me. But once you learn the history of false flags and Operation Northwood, the Gulf of Tonkin, I mean, then you start to realize, oh, okay, 9 11 is really just one of many in a long pattern of deceptive elite doing this to themselves to justify their own means. But You know, all your films are so enjoyable. I really did want to get into the true history of marijuana because it is a subject near and dear to my heart and a topic that doesn't get talked about nearly enough for a show called The Higher Side Chats. We also have that 420 holiday right around the corner. But uh, truthfully, this isn't a silly stoner issue. I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives have been affected through the prison system and the suppression of its medical uses. So it really isn't a joke. But talk to us about your decision to make this film and why you thought it was such a worthy topic?
1: Well, I'm probably one of the very few people who never smoked marijuana in my life.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry to
1: hear that. No, I tried. but It just gave me a headache. My, my son kept saying, trying, trying, daddy, try, try. <laughs> and the, the few times I tried, it just gave me a headache. So I'm not, I that was not the reason, certainly why I would do the film like that. Try. No, it's because when I started studying the history of the 1930s and the petro- the way the petrochemical industry was born, I realized that the whole demonization of marijuana has almost everything to do with the industrial aspect of cannabis and almost nothing to do with the drug aspect of of, the plant.
2: Right. The consumption.
1: Yeah. That that was the excuse that was used to actually get rid of the industrial cannabis, which was the problem. In the 1930s, not only was cannabis uh, used regularly for everything, and I mean everything from food to textiles, to medicine, to combustibles. You could make everything from that. So how are you going to create a whole new industry of petrochemical where where you want to burn oil and not uh, uh, cannabis, when you want to make chemical medicines in the lab and not use natural compounds like like cannabis, when you want to introduce new textiles that are synthetic as opposed to natural fabric like the, the cannabis fabric? You have to get rid of this huge obstacle and the only way to do it was to demonize they were very smart they demonized not the plant itself which was beloved by everybody but its byproduct or the flower or the, which contains the, the THC the higher sad chat mm. and uh mm. by doing that they did such a good job in demonizing the the, the weed that even today there are people who are still convinced from that propaganda from the 40s and 50s that quote unquote uh, marijuana is a stepping stone towards drugs and if you start you never come back and your brain is gonna be, I mean all that stupidity that has no scientific validation whatsoever was done so well by the propaganda machine that even today we have people who are sincerely convinced that marijuana has all those bad effects on you which nobody can prove scientifically but still it's a common it's a common knowledge mm-hmm. at the same time the only scientific research that has been done on marijuana from the 1940s on has shown over and over again that it is not does not damage your brain does not lead you to use heavier drugs not one person has ever died of marijuana overdose in history and basically, it's just, you know, it's just a a very light drug that people can do whatever they want with it if they want to. doesn't hurt anyone else. But because of the industrial aspect, they had to keep. And of course, now, once we found out that it has great medical effects, that part was jeopardized because already you can't use it because it's part of, I think it's called Schedule 1. Yeah. It was It was placed together with drugs which you cannot even test for medical use, like heroin and some other drugs, which I don't know, LSD, I think, and others. So basically, by, by placing cannabis or marijuana in, in Schedule 1 together with those other drugs, it was made impossible to even test their medical validity. And, of course, the first move would be to remove marijuana from Schedule 1 and put it into Schedule 2, where you can actually... But then, of course, you know, the cat would be out of the bag because everybody would have to admit scientifically that it has incredible medical powers, Mm -hmm. especially against cancer. In fact, when I made the film on cancer, oh, I'm sorry, actually, this is the connection. I even forgot about it. When I made the film on cancer, which came before the one on marijuana, I also heard somebody told me, you know, it has good effects for cancer. So I started studying marijuana for cancer. And I started finding so many things about marijuana that I decided to remove the marijuana chapter from the cancer film and to make a film of its own Mm -hmm. because there was so much material on marijuana. That's how it led me to it because, you know, again, being a non-smoker, I was not particularly interested in this. But on doing the cancer film, I found that the connection and the historical reasons why it was removed led me to make a whole separate film from it, which is called The True History of Marijuana.
2: Right. It is so crazy how much influence just a couple billionaires can really yield. And... The industrial aspects, they are vast and and very serious because, you know, you take a drive up through the Pacific Northwest, you see these huge mountainsides just with a bunch of dead trees, just stumps everywhere, hundreds of stumps of redwoods that take decades to grow. And, you know, not to mention what we've done in the Amazon, what the industries have done to destroy the rainforest. And it's all about lumber and timber, but yet marijuana can fulfill all of those roles very well, even better in a lot of cases. And it only takes a few months to grow and you can grow it on the same patch of ground four times a year. And it's it would it'd be a beautiful thing, so much more efficient. And yet the pollution, the destruction of the earth, I mean, it's no small thing.
1: No, and you said it, It would it would do it better. And that's actually the reason why it would make uncompetitive all the chain of products from the petrochemical industry, from plastic to to oil, to um, synthetic uh, textiles, mm-hmm. to synthetic medicines, a lot of that could be replaced with with cannabis and and, and THC and the other cannabinoids. But mm-hmm. of course, because it is better, they would lose, and that's why they can't afford it. It's not even a, it would not it would not be a fair competition. That's actually the reason why they had to get it take it out of the game to begin with. Right. You don't start playing football if you have the best uh, national league team in front of you. You want to get rid of them if you want to win something, and uh, that's what they did. That's what they did. It's very sad. It's very sad because the whole pollution problem that even today, even more, it's, it's afflicting Earth, comes from that. Comes from that greed of wanting to win the battle against a natural product in order to be able to impose your petrochemical products
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and it is so interesting to me how when you really get down to things a lot of times it's one crucial action or, or one specific moment that changes the course of history for decades and at this time William Randolph Hearst had just bought a ton of timberland he just invested so heavily in this and had he not done that he might not have been so motivated to demonize marijuana and set this course of action into motion. It's kind of crazy because also at that time, of course, DuPont had just bought patents to make consumer products from oil that would have completely been displaced by hemp. And so you have these billionaires who had just made these investments. And so as a result, They demonized their competition that would have uh, put them out of business. But it's these these few people doing these very specific things. It's very interesting.
1: It's always a few people, Greg. (laughs) It's always a few people that control the world, unfortunately, because it's the amount of money they can move that matters. It's not the number of people. Mm -hmm. I think that we, the normal people, never stood a chance until some 10 years ago when the Internet started. I think that the Internet was and still is and will definitely be the most important revolution in history of of humanity, of humankind. Because for the first time since 10, 15 years, people have direct unfiltered access to information. Of course, this comes with problems because you have to learn how to separate good information from bad information. That's part of the game. But for those who learn how to do that, direct acts. I mean, I could have not made any of these of eight films that I've made in the last 10 years had it had internet not existed. I would not know these things to begin with. All mm-hmm. the information I have, which I put into my films, comes from, from researching on the internet. So I'm just basically a, a manufacturer of... I transform goods. I find information there and I put it out there again on the internet. But none of that would... I would. I didn't know anything 15 years ago. I didn't know anything about cannabis, about alternative cures for cancer, about the suppression of truth on the UFOs, about who really killed Robert Kennedy or John Kennedy. You know, you could have had doubts about those. But today, today you can really research and find out. And in fact, let me let me just add something here that the new film I'm working on, which is almost completed. Uh, it's going to be called American Moon, and it's about the the moon hoax uh, mm. issue, the mo- whether we went or not to the moon. All the information that I'm using, don't let me stay. Let me state where I stand first, because of course you need to know that. Uh, I was a, f- a professional photographer for thirty, for twenty five years, before uh, just limiting myself to directing films. As a professional photographer, as a, as a kid, I of course believed we went to the moon. When I became a professional photographer and then one day I bumped into the Apollo pictures again, Hmm. I said, Oh my God, what a badly botched up job they did. As a professional, you can tell immediately that those pictures are not made. They're not sunlit. They're not, they're made in the studio actually with artificial lights and a pretty bad job too which was the job you could do back in the 60s. You had no digital retouching then. You had to do everything in the darkroom. Now, I happen to have learned in the same years, I started being an assistant photographer in 74, so basically only a few years after the Apollo missions ended, so I know everything about the darkroom. And I can actually recognize all the little tricks that they used in the darkroom to make those pictures look like they're on the moon. I can see where they added the background that was a distant. That's just a picture. But there's a line separating the foreground from the background. I can see the shadows where they've been corrected and all that. Okay. So that's where I stand. So I decided to to make this um, film about the moon. And I wanted to do this 20 years ago, before the internet. I would not know where to turn. Because until then, until the end of last century, all you had was a few pictures that were published by Life magazine, Time magazine, and if you wanted to get like three new pictures from NASA, you would have to write to them, pay for the prints, wait six months. Then that's not the one you want. Now, the entire archive of the Apollo pictures is available online. Each single shot, 6,000 shots from more or less 6,000 shots from six missions to the moon or six alleged missions to the moon, I've downloaded them all. I can now work with uh, uh, comparing angles of the same sets and I can, that helps a lot. I mean the amount of information available today makes it much much easier for me to reach the conclusions or rather to show other people why I think that the pictures are fake. It would have been very difficult back before the internet because you didn't have the material available. Now all mm-hmm. the all the all the videos that uh, NASA shot on the, on the moon trips are available. And all the pictures, and even just by comparing the pictures with the videos, which are supposed to be in continuity, shot at the same time, you can tell that there are, there are changes and problems, meaning that they shot first the pictures and then the same scene with the video or vice versa and all that. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details of what the uh, evidence is, but the fact that all this information is available, it's a click away, made everything much easier. Mm-hmm. It's still a very mm-hmm. difficult job to put together a film and, and, and prove something like that or make it truly believable. But at least the access to the information is there. And this is really what is changing the history of the world. It's going to take another, at least another generation before the effects of the internet on humanity are really known. Right. But by then, there'll be so much less people watching TV and drinking. The, drinking, I mean swallowing, their news or the fake news from TV and looking for their own truth on the internet. It's going to be another generation. It's going to be hard because at the same time, there's a big pushback from the powers that be so that, you know, they actually fight back on the internet. So you have a lot of lies on the internet as well.
2: Right. The fake news stuff. I mean, that's exactly the campaign they're doing is trying to create so much ambiguity on the internet that you can't even trust that resource. Although. Right you know, in those early stages for us, we're so lucky to have really been there when the floodgates were just wide open. Because yeah, I mean, we've learned so much. And the moon landing definitely is suspicious. I'm super convinced that the footage is fake. I don't know if we ever went to the moon with some special tech
3: Oh, who, I'm here
2: on the back end. You, you yeah. can't know that. But what was shown on TV is largely stagecraft. And mm-hmm. the space program itself is such a huge money sink to anybody who's like, well, why would they do this? I mean, why would they do it? Billions of dollars is why they would do it.
1: Not only that, but I think they got to a point. I mean, I've I've studied the, the, the historical part from 1961 to 1969. So from the day Kennedy announced we'll put a man on the moon and, and return him safely to earth in 61 until the actual alleged landing in 69. I think that up until 1967, the entire Apollo program was real in that, I mean, it has been real all, all the way. In that, they were really trying to build these machines to go to the moon. They were really trying to build the the, the 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 survival system to breathe for eight hours on the moon. They were really trying to to build a rover that would actually go across the moon with the batteries and all that. The problem is that they got this is my 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 conviction, my conclusion. They got around 1967, and they realized that not only the deadline was coming closer, but the problems and the stakes were getting higher. And when the Apollo mission started in 67, they had a great accident where three astronauts were practically burnt, up, practically burned alive inside the capsule on a test flight.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that put them back another year and a half. And they were already late in the schedule. And by then, I think they, on one side, they realized they would not be able to do it. But on the other, They realized they could not admit that they could not do it. They were prisoners. I'm talking about NASA, prisoners of their own propaganda. They had been pushing for the last six or seven years. If you look at the the propaganda films from NASA from from the 60s on, every other sentence is, this will go to the moon, this will take man to the moon. The propaganda was so intense. You couldn't just go on TV and say, sorry, guys, you know, we were kidding. Uh, actually, we're not going to make it. We really don't have the technology. There's too many hurdles. But at that point, also, they had all their simulation system in place, so they could actually simulate. I'm 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 saying it by by 67, an entire mission to the moon and back, in a studio.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm sure I'm I'm convinced that somebody said, "Hey, you know what, guys." If we just give them these films that we use every day for to to train for landing, to train for walks, to train for this and for that, they look exactly like they were on the moon. All we need to do is give them these films, pre-film it, film, go to a studio, film the walks on the moon, and insert that and broadcast it back as live. Who's going to know it's recorded? <laughs> I mean, only a few people needed to know what was really fed into the big dish that was receiving. The images from the moon live on July twenty, nineteen sixty nine. So, if suppose you pre-recorded all the, that the first moonwalk was pre-recorded, and on July twenty, nineteen sixty nine, you put that actual feed into the dish that's receiving uh, the images from the moon. The first people you would actually dupe are those at NASA who stand up and clap and are convinced that we made it to the moon. Mm-hmm. So here comes the big argument, usually they say, oh, there so many people involved in such a large conspiracy, somebody would have talked sooner or later. No, these people, nobody needed to know, only a very, very small handful of people needed to know. Right. Including the astronauts, of course, which is a whole, you know, a thing on itself. But besides the astronauts, only like 20, 30 people would need to know, at the very top of NASA. The rest, they would be the first victims. of of the deceit. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think the lie has stayed on for such a long time and nobody talks because nobody really knows that we didn't except for those who who actually worked on faking it. Mm -hmm. Very few people.
2: And there are so many factors in the moon landing hoax and people really should watch your documentary when it comes out or look at this stuff because a lot of it requires that visual element which we don't have here. But I did want to ask you about The Van Allen radiation belt element, it's something that gets brought up a lot that the Apollo mission astronauts are really the only human beings to ever supposedly get through this. And even if you do get past it, there's all kinds of cosmic rays and radiation flying around in space. Absolutely. What can you tell us about that element and the fact that it just might not actually be physically possible?
1: Well, uh, that's a very, very big argument in the debate. First of all, the the so-called Van Allen belts were discovered in 1958 by one James Van Allen, who actually sent up a probe and just at the last minute thought he would put also a Geiger counter in it. The probe was going up for something else. But they realized that space was radioactive. What they realized is actually that there is this donut-shaped uh, ring of of radiation that goes basically not from the North Pole to the South Pole, but maybe a little lower, like on the 30th degree uh, parallel. I mean three quarters of the Earth, so to speak. You leave out the South Pole and the North Pole. It's open on the ends. There's actually no radiation for the rest. Radiation goes from North to South in, in, a, in, a, in a curved way. And these belts are from 5,000 to 25,000 miles high. They realize that these belts are actually what keeps us alive on Earth. Because they trap and, and keep entrapped all the all the radiation that comes from, from the cosmos. So basically, those are very high protons and electrons going at incredible speed in there. And Van Allen said and wrote an article in 1958 or 59 or so, where he said, you know, future astronauts, there was already talk about going to the moon. So he said, future astronauts will better devise a way to protect themselves very heavily because there's no way you can get through this without dying. I mean, he called actually lethal radiations surround Earth. That was the title of the, of the, of the scientific article they published. Hmm. So this is the first part of the problem. Van Allen says and warns everybody, there's no way out. Either you go out from the North Pole, he said, or you have to protect yourself very heavily, which was impossible because of the weight you would have to put in space to protect astronauts. But also you couldn't really go out from the North Pole because you can't just go up and then turn right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> like you're in an in, 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 in intersection. Uh, to go to the moon, you have to go out through the, the, almost the equator, so to speak. So you have to go out horizontally, so to speak. You just, you know, get a better speed. You can't just go out and then turn it when you're traveling at 27,000 miles per hour. So it was basically impossible. And this is part one of the problem. In fact, during the, the 61, 62, 63 period, during the preparation for Gemini and all that, NASA was studying intensely what to do with these radiation belts. Strangely enough, by 68, by the time the first mission, manned mission, was actually sent through the belts, and, this, and we need to go back and, and state one thing, every single Space operation that's ever happened in the history of humanity has happened within the Van Allen belts. The Gemini, the Mercury, the Soyuz, the Russian, the the actual the space station. Now everything is be, below this belt, so we are protected. The only humans who have allegedly crossed them, as you said before, are the Apollo astronauts from Apollo Eight on. So we come to sixty-eight, and suddenly they decide to launch Apollo Eight to go around the moon and come back. Before they landed, they wanted to go around and see, you know, if it was everything was okay. They put these people out through the Van Allen belts without even sending a monkey before. So with all the warnings that they've had, they put them out with no protection whatsoever because it was simply impossible to protect them because of the weight issue and without even sending a monkey. And the funny thing is that if you listen to the recordings of Apollo 8 traveling to the moon, they don't even mention the crossing. Hmm. It's like you would expect these guys to be the first in history to say – uh, you know what? We're still alive. We don't feel anything yet. So so far so good. <laughs> no, nope, they don't. They don't even mention that. They talk about how the toothbrush floats in space. That's what they do. <laughs> so basically, we have this strange version of NASA where NASA in '69 and '72 says, um, it turned out that there was not so dangerous. Actually, the radiation you get through the belts is the same as getting three X- chest X-rays in three years or something like that. So everybody said, well, "Okay, well then." Okay, Van Allen was wrong, must have been wrong, right? Nope, because now, now that the Orion mission, the Orion project is actually planning, and I believe for the first time, to actually go out and go to the moon, suddenly the radiation problem of the Van Allen belts is back. Now you have a video and you can look it up on YouTube, Uh, look up uh, Kelly Smith radiation belts, because Kelly Smith is the guy from NASA who confesses very candidly on, on camera that before we send people in outer space, we have to cross this very dangerous radiation area called Van Allen belts, and we need to test this before we can put men through there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So the question comes is, "Excuse me, didn't we just do that 50 years ago, and there was no problem? <laughs> so you have this unique situation where after they discovered, and up until 1968, they are defined lethal by all scientific, the scientific body. From '68 to 72, magically, they become harmless. And then after that and up until today, they're dangerous again. Somebody's got to clarify that. Right. So it's very difficult to quantify the actual radiation impact because of the actual angle that you take going out on the tangent and all that. So it's really impossible to prove how much radiation would the astronauts get on themselves going through them.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. But it is definitely legitimate to ask, excuse me, if this was done 50 years ago, why is it a problem again today? And as you said before, once you get out there, it's a whole different ballgame. Because once you cross them, you're really out, out in outer space. And that that's where you get all kinds of cosmic radiation. Gamma rays, X-rays, alpha particles, you name it. They, and they all go through the body. They all go through the, the ship. There's no way to stop those.
2: Right. And all the space debris that's apparently flying around our planet, like thousands of little pieces of metal and all kinds of stuff that are apparently moving at a 1,000 miles an hour, that seems pretty dangerous and risky to just hop through that.
1: Well, first of all, this was not a problem in 68. In 68, there were very few satellites up there. Fair. But uh, today, I would certainly be careful where you're going because, yeah, you have to know your way through that stuff, yes. Mm
2: -hmm. Also, if you just put the astronauts' statements and odd body language under the microscope, that alone is quite telling.
1: The press conference that they had um, three weeks before, after they returned from the moon, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins, you would expect the most, the three most triumphant smiles on their faces. I mean, in fact, when they come in and they go sit behind their desk, the entire body of journalists from all over the world stands up and gives them a standing ovation of some ten minutes, but these guys look like they're at a funeral, yeah, they have the eyes looking down, they look at each other like what the hell are we doing here? What are we going to say? Their answers are so scripted and unconvincing I mean uh, Armstrong is asked at, at some point he says uh, a journalist says from England says, What do you think this is the meaning for the future of humanity and Armstrong goes like uh, I think this is a very big step for the future of mankind. Uh, I mean, it's so odd, so freaky. And they look at each other before, after each answer, like, could you see the stars from the moon? And they look at each other like, what are we going to say? Yes, no, I don't know. You speak no, you say that. I mean, it's really embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And you, you you must think that if, if, if the trips were faked, of course, the astronauts would have to be in on it. And uh, to convince these people to have to carry this lie through their life must have been the hardest part, I think, for them to swallow.
2: Right.
1: These guys grew up from the Mercury project, the Mercury 7, many of them, with the dream of being one day those who went to the moon. Just imagine, after you train for your whole life, for 20 years in your life, for this great event that's coming closer and closer, and then a year before or Two days before you get on the rocket, for as much as far as we know, you're told, you know what? There's no way you can, we can get you back. So we're going to have to fake it. And you're going to have to shut up because this is basically the prestige of America that's at stake right now. If anybody speaks, you know, we're going to look like stupid people, like, like gooks. And, and so they had to, to live with this lie. And this is, I think, the reason why they all retired from NASA immediately afterwards. Uh, they all went into a very, very strange private life. Aldrin became alcoholic, a drug addict, uh, divorced three times. I mean, his life was a wreck. Armstrong retired to private life, never gave interviews. I think he gave three interviews in his entire life. And one of those interviews was not actually very positive about NASA at all. I think it was 1999 or 2000. He he pre- It was presented by Vice President Gore at some award or something, and he gave this speech. And he said, uh, we leave a lot, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, we leave a lot left for the new generations to discover, and there's going to be a reward for those who can remove one of many layers that cover truth. Right. I mean, what kind of talk is that? For somebody, you know, what, what are you talking about, sir? You just tell me that I want to follow in your footsteps and I want to go where you have been. Yeah. No, nope. there's a lot of layers that cover truth and baby. You guys got to work on it, basically. That's the message it gave. Oh, and, and by the way, I agree with you when you say it doesn't mean that they never went to the moon or that even, you know, I never said that we never went to the moon. I say that the, the Apollo missions mm-hmm. are definitely fake. Whether there's people actually even now going back and forth to the moon with different means that we don't know about. That are not public. It's very possible. Like I cannot exclude that, but I am convinced as a photographer and from the research I've made that those uh, images are all staged. That's absolutely sure.
2: I mean, that's all we have access to analyze. So it's all the decisions yeah, actually, and conclusions you can make.
1: Let me let me give you one little anecdote. When I saw these pictures as a, as a, as a photographer, and I was shocked. I called the guy who had taught me photography, the guy who's assistant I had been for three years and who taught me everything about this business. Name is Oliviero Toscani. He's in, in Italy, he's extremely famous. In America, is well-known at high levels. I mean, we're talking about one of the 10 worldwide top photographers of that era. So I called him up and says, what did you think of the first time you saw the Apollo pictures of the moon? And he said, Massimo, I thought that had they asked me to do them, I would have done a much better job. <laughs> This was the answer by one of the top professional photographers. Photographers know easily, like 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 an expert on horse on horses can immediately tell a quick horse from from a, from a loser, right? Or an expert in painting can tell. You know, I cannot tell the difference between a fake Rembrandt and, and a real one. An expert, it takes takes him two seconds. So this is for photographers on the, on the moon pictures.
2: Yeah, <laughs> man, I am excited to see your full breakdown in the film when it does come out. Uh, I wanted to segue a little bit back to the cancer issue. I mean, you did give us a little bit of an overview, but it is a pretty important thing. I mean, you go into the chemo treatment a bit, which I knew was a grueling process. But my God, I did not know that it was nearly as bad as it's described in the film.
1: It is bad because it is actually carcinogenic. Right. And I'm not the one who says that. It says it on the you know the little, the little paper that comes with the medicine when you open the medicine there's a paper inside what do you call that the, disclaimer the well no it's it's a paper with all the instructions that tells you everything about the medicine you just bought and on top of many of these uh, chemotherapy drugs of the most popular it says this drug is carcinogenic or carcinogenic for humans and also radiotherapy obviously is carcinogenic so two out of the 3 "Quote unquote" solutions that we are offered, except for for surgery, the other two, which is radio and chemotherapy, are actually carcinogenic.
3: <laughs>
1: now, what kind of world can pretend that they want to cure you when they know that they are actually killing you? But in the process, they're making a lot of money off of you. Some of these chemo drugs are worth like thirty, forty thousand dollars a month. So every every month you can last on those drugs, somebody's making forty thousand dollars and the same for radio right Ra- the whole radiology the radiotherapy system is huge and extremely expensive so of course every time you go for a radio radiotherapy somebody makes a lot of money out there right who wants to who wants to break this this uh, i don't know if you say golden cow <laughs> it's a, it's a money train yeah it's 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 a money making thing and you cannot afford to cure cancer because what are you going to go with all this you know, you can't sell medicines anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, man. And you go through so many cases of cancer cures that have sprung up over the years and then were quickly suppressed. Tell us about the infrastructure put in place to do that. Because this, again, is a case of Rockefeller, Morgan, and Carnegie being the major players responsible, right?
1: Well, the the infrastructure is very simple. Oh, <laughs> after you studied, it, it's very simple. <laughs> um, the AMA in the 1930s, took control of the, over the so-called naturalistic doctors. Up until the beginning of the next century, the last century, you, you could cure yourself both ways, with the naturalistic and the allopathic doctors, because both were allowed. 1930s, AMA was born, and slowly they started excluding the naturopathic doctors and would only allow allopathic doctors at the same time the rockefellers we, when we say rockefellers we say all the big bankers the carnegies the the Mellons and all that the big bankers who were who are investing money in, in, in chemical medicines also took control of the universities by means of large donations and in exchange for seats in the in the in the boards of the, of this uh, universities so in the, in the, in the between 5 and 10 years time they managed to take control also of what was being taught at university, and this is why actually today you have oncologists who come out of the university and they're totally convinced that no alternative cure is available because that's what they teach them. They teach them how to laugh when you come up with alternative cure. Go to your oncologist who says, you know, suppose one day, I hope not, you, your oncologist tells you that your college tells you that you have cancer, and you try to go up to him and says, you know, doctor, I heard that shark cartilage works. Not only is he gonna say no, he's gonna laugh at you. He's gonna oh, please, you know, like I know better. That's the attitude. <laughs> right. That attitude is being taught. They're not all, uh, let me say this bad word, they're not all assholes in themselves. It's the attitude that's been taught in schools, in, in universities. Please don't even listen to those alternative quacks, you know. Your mind is not ready to accept an alternative anymore. And that's why every doctor you go to, whenever you mention an alternative cure, will laugh at you. I always suggest, you know, when people ask me what to do with cancer, and what do I do? I say, you know, whatever you do, don't tell your doctor, because it's gonna be a waste of time, and you're gonna fight over, and you might break up your relationship with him. And in fact, sometimes it's happened that people have taken an alternative route, and they didn't tell their doctors, and then they actually healed, and they went back. The doctor says, what the hell have you been doing? You're supposed to be dead by now. And they didn't tell him. He says, well, you know, miracle. <laughs> you know, because it's the only way really that works for them. Let me give you one one little anecdote that to me was, again, something very, very uh, meaningful about cancer. When I moved to the States, I had this dog that was like 16 years old. And uh, one day I noticed that the dog doesn't walk anymore. She has problems. I take her to the vet. That takes x-rays and says, look, this dog has a, a tumor on the liver. This is as large as the liver itself, basically. So it says, if I, if you want, I can operate, but in six weeks from now, this dog is going to be dead anyway. And I said, well, you know, operate and see what happens. I go home and I start giving my dog shark cartilage, which I knew from an experience with a friend of mine that works in that it, it stops new tumors from growing. It stops every metastasis that you have if it's small enough, hmm. which would be after the operation. It be, be, it gets suffocated by the shark cartilage. So I started giving her shark cartilage, and the dog lives. Okay, so move for, fast forward two years later. The dog is now eighteen, has a bad tooth. I go back to the clinic. I end up by chance with the same vet. He doesn't remember the dog, of course, right? So he removes the tooth. I tell him nothing. Then he takes the, the 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 paperwork and stops and says, "Wait a minute! This dog cannot be alive. I operated this. My signature here. I operated the carcinoma two years ago. It has to be dead." And I said, "What well, does it look dead to you? <laughs> what did you do? What did you do?" He said, "I did shark cartilage, and I explained everything." So he for a moment he was interested because he had the dog in front of him, right? So I said, "Can I?" He said, "Can I take X-rays, please?" I says, "Please go ahead." So, we did a new round of x rays, and you could see in the liver this little black dots surrounded by like a gel like a gray gel, and that's exactly what shark cartilage does the black the dark dots were the metastasis, the cancer coming back, and the the gray gel around was the shark cartilage actually suffocating and killing the metastasis. Hmm. This is why the dog never had cancer again so he was all like shocked. He said, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look it up. Two weeks later, I walk by, you know, in front of of the place with the same dog, and I run into him in the street, and I said, "So, did you have a chance to look up?" "Oh yeah, I looked it up, but it says it's all bullshit. Basically, it's not really. You know, it's just a it's a fad. Isn't it? It, 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 it doesn't work."
3: <laughs>
1: and I had the dog with me, alive, in front of him, but his mentality. He went. He went to ask probably some some clinical master or something, some, some of his colleagues, and they must have said it's all BS. So he accepted it because this is their mentality. This is why you will never have, except for extremely rare situations, you will never have a, an oncologist, an orthodox oncologist, suggest an alternative cure. Right. That, right. To answer your question, they made sure that these alternative cures never are become successful by simply teaching their doctors To reject them up front
2: and you also talk about how fear goes into the whole thing and i get it i sometimes worry if i got cancer would i really have the courage to just put all my faith in one of these alternatives even though i've seen the research i mean it's very difficult to to really follow through when it's a personal thing like that i mean if you came down with cancer knowing what you know having done all the research what what would your game plan be
1: well in my particular case, because I have done extensive research, I wouldn't even go close to an, an orthodox doctor.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I would only use them to get diagnosis, and then I would go look. I would go look for my my alternative cure. But that's me because I've been in such a proximity with with studying these things, you know, and and talking to. For example, I even there's one doctor in my film named Simoncini, an Italian one, who cures cancer with sodium bicarbonate. And I'm not going to tell you now why that works. But in the beginning, of course, I was laughing at the idea that, you know, sodium bicarbonate can cure cancer. Then he explained to me why, and I accepted it. But then I said, I'd like to interview some of you, the people you have healed, because, you know, I want to talk to them directly. Well, it, I ended up in, in three years. I put together a collection of maybe 40 or 50 patients who told me basically the same story. I was cancer with stage four or stage five. I was sent home to die. Official medicine told me that they had no, there was nothing else they could do for me that I was told to put my things in in order and and go home and enjoy my last days with my family and that's when I started this cure with Dr Simoncini and lo and behold, suddenly I'm cured. I have no more cancer I didn't have to remove the organs and everything so in my particular case, because i've you know I've been in touch with these people I've interviewed them directly I know that this or any other cure, like the Gerson therapy or the scac do work. For a person who is in between, a person, let's say, who says, who knows that there are alternative cures but does not know for sure, it's a very difficult place to be because on one side, you don't have the courage, like you said, to just throw yourself into an alternative cure. But on the other, you need to understand that the official medicine, the academic medicine preys on your fear. They use the fact that you have fear in order to give you what they want. Yeah. Once you know that what they're going to give you will eventually kill you, because that's what chemotherapy eventually does in the long run, they say you have a better quality of life and all that. Oh, sure, but then I'm dead. Because what happens with chemotherapy is that by killing or trying to kill the cancer cells, it also kills the good cells of the immune system. It's like sending up a SWAT team, in a place where you know that there's four terrorists, but there's also 50 healthy, 50 normal people. Sure, you kill everybody, but you also kill the, the healthy people. The healthy people being the immune system part that still works, you're relinquishing any possibilities you have left to heal by yourself. What I think is important to understand about cancer is that all, most of these remedies do not actually cure cancer directly like the SEACT, the Hoxy the, the treatment, or the Gerson therapy, they don't actually fight cancer. They restore your immune system, and then your immune system takes care of the cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for, again, a couple, which are shark cartilage and, and bicarbonate, which attack directly the tumor. And in that, they can be defined as allopathic. All the rest really does not cure cancer, it enables you to get rid of cancer. Mm -hmm. If you're not already at the very last stage and your immune system is still, let's say, decent, you can help it to become 110% efficient and get rid of cancer. If instead, at that point, your immune system is already weak, debilitated, and you go in the direction of chemotherapy, you end up killing the rest. So sure, for 10 minutes, you will have killed cancer. But by, by the end of the week, you have nothing left to defend you. And when cancer comes back, it just eats you up.
2: Right. I'm with you, man. <sighs> ah, this has uh, been a lot of fun, man. It looks like we're getting close to uh, the finish line here. You've covered a lot of topics in your documentaries. Of course you have the moon landing one coming out next. Are there any other subjects you plan on tackling down the line that you want to tell us about or give us a preview of?
1: Uh, the next one, if I have the energy, the brain, and <laughs> the time, and all that, that I would like to do after the moon is uh, one on 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 economy in the banking system. Yeah, I think I'm- that's obviously the number one issue of the world right now. I am not a big expert in economy, so I need to study a lot before I do that. So that's why I've been postponing it a little bit. And also, it's but I think there's something that needs to be clarified once and for all. I mean, this we're all the whole humanity is really. Enslaved states, now nations are enslaved, not people just. Nations are enslaved in, in the in the debt system, debt slavery, slaves of, of debt. And uh, until that is clarified and until people really understand how this works, there's no way out of that system. Slavery will continue in a very nice form, in a, in a form that makes you feel like you're free. <laughs> but really, I mean, a country like mine has... 2,000, uh, let me think, 2,000 billion The de- foreign debt that we have to pay. We basically put 40% of the taxes we pay just to pay this debt, which obviously kills the entire economy and our lifestyles. Just think what we could do with 40% less taxes to be paid that could go directly into the economy, and that really tells you what's what's controlling the, the world. I'm talking about the Western world
3: now yeah
1: all especially europe europe with the with the euro money with the currency that's been unified that's really a political weapon to control 27 nations with one button right and you could see what happened for example in greece last year when when greece tried to rebel or to to react and get out of europe they immediately pressed that button they closed their banks people were left with with no money and obviously they had to accept the, the euro system banking, banking system, because otherwise, you know, they're going to end up with no money. You control the, the money of a country, you control the country. And when you control the money of 27 countries, you control Europe. So from one little office somewhere in Brussels out there where the capital of Europe is, <laughs> somebody can control all that. This needs to be understood and clarified at least. It cannot be reversed in a, in a week or two. But I think it's necessary to make at least that that information available in the most possible clear way. So the people then can decide whether they still want it or not. You know, it's ultimately it's up to the people to revolt again. You cannot have a leader that will go against the 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 big the powers that be it will always be a loser. Yeah. The only way for any kind of change or revolution to happen is when a large enough number of people understand a problem before the problem goes away because you just unmask it
3: mm-hmm.
1: but you, mm-hmm. you expose it but it, it has to be a large number of people and it has to be the majority it has to get to a tipping point there's a little bit is happening now with vaccines and medicines there are a lot of people now that uh, don't trust vaccines anymore and uh, they're very weary of just getting uh regular medicines without at least checking themselves mm-hmm. that's getting near the tipping point already in terms of self-control of your own um, um, health if that happens also with the rest of our lives it's gonna be fun hope I'll, I'll be around long enough to to see something like that happen
2: amen and you are right there is a little bit of hope in some of these different areas but it is true that the bankers' tentacles wrap around pretty much everything in this world. And one of my favorite phrases or, or quotes, I can't remember who said it, but about the way uh, the system has worked is that with slavery, that meant that owners had to feed and clothe their slaves. But in economic slavery, people have to feed and clothe themselves. Yeah. And uh, I just thought that was an interesting way to look at it because that really is the case. But very cool, man. It has been a real pleasure. Oh, a great. great range of...
1: Greg, yes. let me just ask you one thing. If I could do something that helps me a little bit. If anybody wants to help me with the American Moon project and wants to make a donation, I I barely need that because I need to travel and go interview some photographers around the world before I finish the film. If anybody sure. wants to have a GoFundMe page that's called uh, American Moon. So if you go to GoFundMe.com slash American Moon, you can find it and any donation is welcome. There's a little bit of uh, little perks that come to you if you make a donation and it's highly appreciated if anybody wants to give me a hand. Thank you.
2: Of course. And uh, I also did want to give you a second to remind the people where to go and see your films or anything else well, going on that might be helpful for them to know about.
1: My yeah. films, I make them available usually. They're all available online on YouTube. If you search just the, the titles, you find them, you know, The New American Century, Cancer of Forbidden Cures. You'll find accounts that have like two or three million views on mm-hmm. Cancer the Forbidden Cures alone. Again, if somebody wants to give me a hand, they can buy the DVD from Amazon.com and uh, just look up my name, Massimo Mazzucco. And uh, all the DVDs I sell are free duplication, so you can duplicate them and give them out to your friends as much as you want. And they're all there, there's like one one pack with all the, all the DVDs at once, called The Great Dice of History, or you can buy them single if you're interested in some titles alone. Uh, that's about it. That's my way to support myself.
2: Right on. Well, thanks for spending the time with me, Massimo. I really do appreciate it. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks again. Take care out there.
1: I'll talk to you again when the film is ready, when the American moon is ready. Thank you.
2: Perfect. Happy days are here again, Hireside Chatters. How about that? Massimo Mazzucco. Mm. Another great guest request from the Oh So Sexy THC Plus forums. And I wanted to say I do so much tech support and customer service for THC Plus, forgotten passwords, people who can't get logged in or can't get the feed or app working. I handle a good couple hours of those messages a week and it eats up a lot of my time to actually engage on the forums and have some fun. But I did put out a big Jared Kushner thread there and I'm psyched to see what you people think. But anyway, big thanks to Massimo. He's done a lot of great work, and to talk about marijuana, moon landings, and suppressed cancer cures in one episode, I thought was pretty great. I was hoping to get this out on 420, but in classic stoner fashion, I didn't. And you know what's funny? Some of my detractors have actually accused me of not being a weed smoker. That is how paranoid and guarded some elements of the conspiracy community are. Not that they don't have a reason to be, but to be skeptical of the fact that I can be a daily smoker and produce a good show... Maybe you should change the stereotype you have in your head of what a stoner can be. Maybe you're buying into a little propaganda that weed has to make you lazy and stupid. Could that just be a little more likely than the idea that I'm faking it for some reason? It's just a little annoying because I do get it from both sides. I've also had dozens of people write me and say that they love the show but can't join Plus because they don't want their money to go to drugs. Which I say, okay, Your money won't go to drugs. I'll make sure that your $5 goes specifically to rent. Is that okay? Do you put a waiter or waitress through the same scrutiny before you tip them? Do you visit these sweatshops that make your clothes and check for sobriety? I mean, it's sort of an insane standard to hold me to by comparison, right? But I am happy to be the stoner conspiracy show and to buck at least some of those stereotypes. It's marijuana that's largely helped to pry open my mind, it's helped me relax, hang over free after a shitty 9-to-5 day in retail, and I think it has a place in the alternative world. I'm glad we got to focus on the cannabis conspiracy a little bit, but I never want to make it an obsession or overdo it. It's a subtle influence on the show, at least I hope so. I try to make it that way so people don't write us off as silly or unserious because a lot of great, well-educated guests present valuable and underrated research here. And I'm really not going to try to cheapen that at all. But on the subject of 420, I did attend the Cannabis Cup in San Bernardino, and it totally exceeded my expectations. Like any convention type of event, there was a ton of vendors there who had booths full of interesting new weed-related products and businesses. Almost every booth had either a free dab or some type of edible sample. So to say the least, by the end of the day, me and my people were super high. And it was just fun to be around so many other smokers and not be worried about hiding it or looking over my shoulder for cops. I've always said that drugs don't make you paranoid. It's the drug laws that do that. So it was a fun time, and at the peak of my high, I was on a really high, no pun intended, Ferris wheel in perfect weather at sunset With 50 Cent on stage playing the hits. And 50 Cent holds a special place in my heart as some good friends of mine had a parody group in high school called 25 Cent with the album Get Rich or Die Being Poor. So it was a nostalgic moment. Another good anecdote is I was at one booth and paid $5 to spin the wheel. I'm sure you've seen this kind of thing. And I landed on the very small sliver that said you won a free ounce. And that's pretty amazing, right? It wasn't the best weed in the world, but a value of well over $100 at least, probably $200. It's like a three-week supply for those of you who might not know. Maybe my magic's working. (laughs) But as for today's show, I'm really happy with it. An array of subjects most of us know some stuff about, but maybe some new threads or bullet points were learned. As always, we got deeper in the plus show, and this one we talked about where the medical benefits of cannabis and the cancer solutions converge. Talked about the difference between European and American healthcare systems and how that affects access to alternative treatments overall. The story behind the Essiac cancer treatment, the nurse and the medicine man that started it all, the shark cartilage cure and its controversy. And I Googled this because this was new to me and I'm seeing so much stuff that's saying it's bonk and bullshit and it's totally not a legitimate thing. But yet, if you dig a little deeper, you will find cases where people have used shark cartilage, and they say it fixed their cancer. Plenty of links say that sharks do get cancer, but I really think that's kind of not the point. The point is, does it help as a treatment? And there's a lot of indications that it does. But it was a weird one that I hadn't really heard before this show. We also got into the asbestos elements of 9-11, which I do think are interesting and valid. Not that it justifies a false flag in the middle of New York City, but it furthers the point that they were going to do something. I actually think the argument that it was built with sacrifice in mind has some merit, but this asbestos angle can tie right into that. You know, it's not an either-or thing. We also talked about the Syria saga, Russia, and current events, which I will say, this show was recorded a few weeks ago, but the things we talked about... The things we said we kind of expected to happen pretty much did, and you really wouldn't know that it was a few weeks beforehand, but I just wanted to pat me and Massimo on the back for kind of being right on. We also talked about the history of the struggle Russia has had with UFOs, a little more violent than the American side, and we talked about Massimo's assessment that the competition between Russia and the United States during the space race and probably other areas is simulated to some degree. And when we were talking about UFOs as if they're not the United States and they're not Russia's, who could they be? They must be alien. I do think that some of them are non-human technology, but we did leave out the fact that they could have very well been German. I mean, I don't know what Massimo thinks of that angle, but we've heard about the Sonora Aero Club. We've heard about the Nazi Bell, and I do think it is a piece of that puzzle for sure. But interesting stuff overall. Do check out his documentaries on YouTube. Links are in the show notes. And check out his site. Buy the DVD versions of these films if you think that maybe you have an older person in your life who might respond better to a DVD. Plus, maybe you just want to support him because he's doing great work. Also, his GoFundMe page for American Moon is in the show notes. I would love to see that get a little more support. Because the window in which he can actually interview some of these old guys is closing. And we really don't want to miss that. And as always, support THC if you can. I try to give you a lot of good shows and keep the price as low as it can be. PayPal and the credit card processors have to get their cut, so I really can't go any lower. And most of you have been listening for long enough to know that you like the show. Go back and get those second hours, and you can stay current from here on out. If you signed up for a year of the Higher Side Chats Plus, you would get 60 extra hours of content. That's like 30 full-length movies worth. In twelve months, for only sixty bucks, so I think that is a hell of a deal, and I hope you agree. I'm not asking you to break the bank. I'm hoping that collectively, small amounts from a large group of people can keep this ship afloat, and so far so good. That said, love you guys. Thanks for listening. Keep throwing off those chains and keep your pimp hands strong. I've done my part. Your move, cannabis suppressors, moon landing forgers, and shadowy members of the Cancer Cabal. Your fucking
0: like to be a rainmaker I wonder what it's like to know that I made the rain I saw it Like to be a superhero I wonder where I go if I can fly around down.